Welcome to the first substantive episode of Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. My name is Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Telt. Today we will be discussing Sandman number one, Sleep of the Just, published in late November of 1988, but the cover date on it was January 1989. Of course, the author, Neil Gaiman. Art is by Sam Keith, who later went on to um, do The Max, which was a Image Comics uh, imprint. Mike uh, Driggenberg did the uh, inking then. Um, and uh, Todd Klein was the letters. Uh, Robbie Bush did the colors. Karen Berger was the editor. Karen Berger, uh, editor of this and a number of other comics that later were put into the Vertigo line from DC Comics. Yeah, she played a pretty big role in inventing the 90s, I would say. And this this first issue is a, a longer than typical issue. It's it's 40 pages rather than 24 pages. There's a, an, an awful lot of story packed into this one, uh, but I think it's going to be a, a lot of fun. I think there's going to be a lot to talk about kind of revisiting our uh, introduction to Morpheus the dream king here just for a little bit of background i think both of us probably read this issue after we had read other sandman comics um neither of us i think were early sandman adopters with this um and so we had a sense as to who sandman sort of was before at least i did before i read this um but i'm, I'm kind of curious what someone having first picked up this comic would think what they were getting because it's it's something a little different and we're going to we're going to see some of that here in the issue. I think there there's there's one place where the, the the question of who is the Sandman or which Sandman is this uh is brought up in a way that I think is really fun and really interesting. Uh, but there is it is also interesting the way that the the character, the protagonist, the title character is not really introduced to us until almost uh, halfway through the the story in fact we we're, we're seeing him with before we actually have a name or a title to go with him which is an interesting choice that i think we'll we'll want to talk about when we uh when we get there uh, but i think with that said should we should we get into the the uh the page by page here yeah let's do that so it opens on a shot of a uh mansion in uh england um where a yawning man in a top hat is pulling being pulled up to a house uh it is uh, we're informed it is June 6th, 1916, um, and this is Witchcross, England. Um, and I-, I was a little confused by the art on this page just because it looks like on the one hand he seems yawning, on the other hand he seems kind of frightened then as he walks up to the door to then uh, knock and be allowed admittance. This whole scene is real scary. I mean, this this mansion here at Witch Cross. I mean, frankly, it looks haunted, right? There's uh, there's dragon statues on stone pillars that are that are making a fence. There's this demonic door knocker, and we are told that it's June, June sixth, nineteen sixteen, the middle of the First World War. But there are hardly any leaves on the trees. In fact, it it looks either like the artist just thought they wanted to draw autumn for some reason, or I don't know if we're actually supposed to infer something about the uh, supernatural elements of, of this house by the fact that the trees are mostly seem to be dead or dormant here in the middle of the summer. Yeah. And in that first panel, there are, um, in addition to the trees that uh, have no leaves on them, as you mentioned, there are some birds kind of circling o- overhead and you can't see, are they, are they ravens? Are they crows? Are they vultures? Based on the way the story goes, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a close up of them, that it would be any one of those. Yeah. They certainly don't seem to be blue jays or robins or some, some kind of happy songbird. <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's all very menacing and very ominous. Uh, so th- this, this guy, this frightened guy, this frightened old man is Dr. John Hathaway. And he announces that he's come to meet Mr. Burgess. Uh, Dr. Hathaway is the curator of the Royal Museum, and Mr. Burgess has been after him for one of the museum's holdings, the very ominously named Maudlin Grimoire. But Dr. Hathaway, as the curator, has refused uh, many times. But his son was just killed at the Battle of Jutland, which is a, a famous naval battle between Germany and the UK in the, the First World War. And because Burgess has claimed to Dr. Hathaway that he can use this book, use the maudlin grimoire to bring an end to death or or maybe reverse death even, some kind of nonspecific necromancy, I guess, because of this claim, 
Dr. Hathaway is now ready to give him the book. And this is where we learn that, that Burgess is the head of some kind of occult society, and he needs this maudlin grimoire to perform a ceremony at the next full moon. Uh, and and maybe I think we should talk here about what the artists do on this page. This is all really happening on just one page. Uh, what they do to suggest what is going on here to back up Gaiman's kind of vague dialogue. I, I guess really the question I have for you, Brent, is how would you describe this panel? It's kind of a menacing, very Tales from the Crypt, you know, horror comics kind of stylings and panels. And you've got the goat-headed man kind of motif running around the borders of the page. And, you know, he's he seems like a menacing figure. Um, on the other hand, um, there's the one picture, uh, image of him, uh, Burgess, where he also just seems like a potbelly old kind of lunatic. Um <laughs> So it, it's interesting to me that in many of them, he seems extremely menacing um, and like something out of a, like he's a male version of Baba Yaga and you wandered into, you know, her hut or something. <laughs> but on the other hand, he also seems kind of like a somewhat enfeebled old man. But uh, either way, Dr. Hathaway seems kind of uncomfortable with being there at all and with giving up this manuscript. Um, but, you know, as he mentions in text, um, that he is, uh, you know, begrieved by the loss of his son. That is not coming across as much in the art, um, but uh, he's kind of at a distance, so it's harder to make him out versus uh, Burgess, who just seems in the last panel of the page almost like a mob boss. I think that's right. This this scene here, just on this one page, has all of the hallmarks of either the start of a horror story or the start of a hard-boiled detective story, where uh, a, some rich person has summoned a person with specialized skills to his mansion and is receiving this person then in the sort of opulent study and is taking kind of an arrogant approach to the conversation because he's the person who's in charge. I mean, it's, it's real classic, but I really love the way that the artists have laid out this panel with various close-ups of their faces with this interesting sort of art nouveau horror border around some of it uh, it's it's very cool it's a very cinematic way of doing it i think yeah i mean it definitely sets a tone for maybe even just this the uh, first you know several issues of sandman but certainly this first particular issue it very much puts it in the kind of horror comics milieu if you will We've been promised some horror here, right? Where there's a ceremony at the full moon uh, that we are going to get to. But before we get there, we have an interlude with some secondary characters whose stories we're going to be tracking in other such interludes throughout the story. Uh, we'll just go through them here. So in, in Toronto, there's a young girl named Ellie Marston. She's listening to her mother read her uh, Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll with that Alice in Wonderland story. And it absolutely terrifies her. And it seems very likely to give her nightmares. In Jamaica, uh, the young boy Daniel Bustamante dreams of a castle made of clouds floating above the Blue Mountains. In France, in the trenches that make up the battle line between the German and the Allied armies here in the First World War, Stefan Wasserman, a 13-year-old German soldier, is preparing to go over the top of the trenches and to make an assault on the enemy lines. And our fourth and, and final character here uh, is a young woman in London named Unity Kincaid, who is dreaming of a tall, dark man whose eyes are burning like twin stars. Uh, and we are going to revisit these characters very shortly. We also will, uh, a little later, hear reference to someone dreaming of a similar described man who is not Unity Kincaid, as if uh, multiple people are seeing this man perhaps in their dreams, uh, and that will make more sense as we go. My memory of this comic, I haven't read this particular issue in a couple of years, and I remembered them all kind of experiencing things in a similar way as to what their respective fates are in some ways. But uh, as we'll see, um, there's actually quite different things that happen to them. So then after that, we're taken to um, returning to Burgess's mansion, where uh, a young boy who we discover is his father, although... The Burgess the Senior would prefer to not be referred to as father, but as Magus, which is uh, a fun trick to play on a child. So I wish that people would call me that, particularly um, if I ever have children. I will probably insist on that as well. But uh, they return to the manor where it is very dark and creepy. And of course, we need candles to, to light the way. 
Um, there probably is not electricity yet in this particular house, perhaps. They're going down to his cellar to perform their, their dark rite, um, that they've been preparing for. And he announces that, that even if they fail, then they, they certainly will, um, be able to, uh, take advantage of, uh, something. Even if uh, it doesn't go completely as planned, which we'll see that uh, it doesn't go completely as planned. He, he references that they'll make no more jokes, and he references that uh, he'd like to see Alistair and his friends try to make a f- uh, fun of me. Um, and there, uh, he's referring to Alistair Crowley, who is a noted character, fixture, personality. How shall we refer to him? Yeah, he was Glamrock before Glamrock was a thing. Yes. Um, I remember that uh, Led Zeppelin, I believe, recorded one of their albums uh, in one of his houses. This was a nice little touch here. Alistair Crowley was probably the, the person who Roderick Burgess is really based off of, but for a variety of reasons, Gaiman didn't want to just use Alistair Crowley here in this story. And so what they're trying to do with this ritual is summon and imprison death. And, you know, this is a pretty prestigious thing for this cult to do is I guess what we're supposed to learn from that comment that uh, if we can do that, we'll be the better cult than the more famous and lucrative cult that's run by Alistair Crowley, which I I, I think this idea of there being rival cults uh, here in England in the middle of the First World War is, a, is an interesting storytelling touch. Well, it's kind of like when the um, local um, bull and moose clubs get into a conflict. Uh, it can't always be solved by snapping your fingers and having a dance-off in the right, sometimes <laughs> Sometimes you need to have out-ritual each other. Yeah, sometimes you need to summon an imprisoned death. <laughs> So, so as you as you say, Brent, we are we are now naturally in the basement of Burgess's creepy mansion. Everyone's in robes here for this ritual, and there are some some ritual objects that Burgess needs to present, and there's a speech that he needs to make. Some of the the more interesting objects are a stick that Burgess stuck through a dead man's eye, and a feather that he pulled from an angel's wing, and. Burgess ends this ritual by saying that he summons death in the names of the old lords, uh, and then he gives some of those names, which are uh, an interesting mix of ancient Mesopotamian deities and uh, Christian demons, most of whose names were invented in the the 16th century. And as Burgess finishes the ritual, uh, something begins to take shape, a a humanoid figure with a cloak and a weird helmet. Uh, This is all very cool. It is. It is. Uh, in addition to it just seeming like you're watching a Tom Waits cover band do it all in robes, because a stick that was stuck in a dead man's eye clearly is something that would come out of a Tom Waits song. But uh, also, uh, one of my favorite items is the uh, a song I stole from the dirt, which if that's not from a Tom Waits song, I... I feel like uh, Mr. Waits has left let us down if it is not at least in one of his recordings. Yeah, it probably is from a Tom Waits song. We really should have looked into that. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. But then we are left with then the splash title page of this, uh, as you said, robed or caped figure with his giant kind of H.R. Geiger inspired uh, kind of helmet um, and a big ruby necklace that's fallen from his uh, neck and a bag of some kind uh, that looks like something a Dungeons and Dragons character would call a small pouch um, as opposed to a large pouch that they would have attached to their belt, but it has fallen out of his hand. And then we have the splash page of the title, The Sleep of the Just. Then initially, then they, they have one of the occultists whispering to another, we did it, I don't believe it, we did it. Which is uh, fair if you think you have summoned death uh, and you think it actually worked. Right. I mean, of, of course, this is this is where I think it's really interesting to, to try to imagine reading this cold, reading this, you know, for the first time, not knowing anything about what this book is or what this series is going to be. Because you know, you might actually just be thinking, in fact, you have to be wondering if this character here on the floor is death. We know we know that it's not. Uh, it's hard for us to drop that baggage, but I'm interested, Brent, if you think that that we could have already inferred that this is Dream uh, or Morpheus just based on the information that we've gotten in the six previous pages. I mean, I think we probably would from the cover of the comic that says Sandman, but from the pages prior to that, um, I'm not entirely sure. Um, there's the reference to the people sleeping and having dreams and nightmares. But if I was not given the cover of this comic and just given a few pages and dropped in from out of space, like, I don't know that I would know what this thing was. But I, Glenn, what do you think? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right that just based on the the title of the book that I think we might actually have been able to guess that that's that's who this was going to going to be. I do think it's pretty clear that this is not death. There's nothing iconically death-like about this character. And and of course, I guess the the characters tell us really just on the very next page right away that this is not death. Though it is still going to be several pages. I think maybe about eight more pages before uh, the character is named. Though with that in mind, I think we should probably just go ahead and refer to this character as Dream since we know and everyone else who's listening knows as well. Uh, so yes, Burgess, he he admits he knows right away that this isn't death. And of course, this is uh, frustrating. It's a disappointment. We've already talked about what is at stake for him. But still, this is some kind of uh, numinous being. And so they take Dream's stuff and they leave him trapped in this basement, very naked and uh, and very pale as well. There's some kind of a residual smoke from whatever the ceremony has left behind or something that kind of within the circle that he seems to be trapped in with him. Uh, there's the, uh, but I can't tell if that's supposed to be actual smoke or if that's supposed to be, you know, the remnants uh, of whatever stuff was around him and whatever realm he was in when he was pulled to this location. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's wisps of uh, his realm or somewhere else. Uh, we'll find out later. We'll have uh, hints later as to where he might have been when this occurred. But uh, at this point, we, we just don't know um, what's going on. Well, before we get any more story about what's going on here in the, the Burgess mansion, we have to get our second interlude. We're going to check in with these these four characters again. So Ellie, Ellie falls asleep with through the looking glass on her lap, and she never wakes up, we're told. Uh, Daniel Bustamante's dream about the castle and the clouds comes to a, a real scary end as the clouds disappear and he falls. And uh, after this nightmare, he's too afraid to go back to sleep. Uh, we go over to the, the, the front, the Western front of the First World War, and the doctors think that Stefan Wasserman has some new kind of shell shock because he won't sleep at all, even when they give him morphine. And in London, Unity Kincaid sleeps for 20 hours a day now, but she doesn't seem to dream anymore. And I think what I really enjoy about this interlude is that uh, it takes a two-page spread and it gives us a, a, a quadrant of it to each character. And the art for each character is so different, right? It's unique to that character's story, which I, I really liked. But I just wondered if you had a, a favorite of these or one that you thought went best with Gaiman's narrative. I mean, I think they all serve the narrative so well, but they're all, I mean, as you said, they're almost out of four different stories. Ellie's tale reminds me of some Victorian era kind of horror story or, you know, gothic tale. There's some stark, terrible colors going on for Stefan at the front. And, you know, his face, it just looks like he's just faced terror itself, which already for the front uh, was was pretty terrible. But it, it even looks worse, maybe, we're led to believe. Unity Kincaid seems very kind of at peace, but in a way that's somewhat off-putting. But uh, Daniel's... Uh, the vision of the hymn is it's such a happy, playful, naked boy looking at his cloud castle. And then it just becomes so kind of depressing and stark. Uh, I think that his may strike me the most just because the first two panels are him kind of in a, you know, comfortable, playful, restful dream space. And then the third panel, his final panel is him, you know, bursting awake at night, uh, not at all anywhere near his castle in the clouds and just looking kind of terrified and like he's realized something awful or something terrible has happened and, you know, caused some kind of a psychic, you know, uh, earthquake for him. Is there one that you think strikes you a little bit more than the others? I think the one that moved me the most was the Unity Kincaid in the the bottom right. It, it, you know, it just takes three panels. There's really and there's really only two colors, kind of uh, white, almost just pure white, and I don't know, I guess fuchsia, and then shades in between. And because we're being told that she's asleep but not dreaming anymore, the art uh, zooms in on her face. So we see we see her face to start, then we get in on her her nose and her mouth, and then in the end, just her mouth. And what we're looking at there, right, is that there's just no 
movement, no motion, that she is basically uh, dead, even though she is still alive. It's a real um, Snow White or, or Sleeping Beauty uh, type of situation for her. And I like the way that the artists uh, take a description that has no action in it, and that, in fact, no action is really the point of it, and still give action to the art. I really enjoyed that. We'll check in with these characters again before we leave this issue. But for now, I think we should get back to the imprisoned dream narrative here in the the Roderick Burgess basement. Then we go to the basement where finally we are seeing things both from his perspective, which is the first we're seeing of that. And we're also then getting the thought balloons bubbles of him speaking or, you know, thinking aloud in a way that we are able as the omniscient. Uh, reader able to know what he is thinking just the words trapped the word observe and then finally at the end of the word uh the words threats and patience kind of as he digests it but uh um, what did you think of how burgess kind of comes across though from you know the perspective of the trapped dream on this page glenn Right. There's some really interesting things going on in this page. The the first thing I just want to say is that dreams, uh, thought bubbles and dream speech bubbles have a a unique appearance to them in that they are all black with white lettering. I'd kind of forgotten that. And so seeing those here for the first time made me feel like I was coming home again. And I, I really enjoyed that. But the the art here that we're seeing is basically uh, it's a black page with six circles that that look like glass uh, glass spheres like snow globes basically and all of what we're seeing here is or what we're getting here is dreams vision the way that he can see through his prison and it's all distorted it's all a uh, fishbowl really and not so much snow globe i guess is the effect that we're looking at so everything is distorted and out of shape and everybody looks really really menacing and burgess in particular uh, has this this massive nose and he's uh, bald headed uh, his eyes uh, are really big but his also his eyebrows his 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 brow he's got kind of a a crow magnon brow i suppose yeah i agree i think that um jerry o'connell and the other slider gang sliders gang really have to worry about his uh crow magnon visage um and it's interesting because he's just he he has such a dram- um, dramatic entrance he's got the guards who kind of open the door from the inside for him um and then he's got he's flanked by his son as well as another associate who are then just kind of leering and peeking in. And then, you know, he says, we will discuss the conditions of your release. So he doesn't even want to take the time to discuss that now. He seems to think he can sweat dream out by leaving him there, um, which later ends up being almost a comical um, thought on his behalf. But he very much thinks, uh, Burgess thinks he clearly has the upper hand in this scenario. Yeah, he doesn't know that he's not the protagonist in this story, which I suppose is true for, for all of us in some in some sense. Well, af- after this point, uh, some time passes, and it's, it's 1920 now. Uh, Burgess and his order have been blackmailing Dr. Hathaway into giving them more and more artifacts from the Royal Museum. But Dr. Hathaway's been caught now, and so he's going to kill himself, and he's going to leave a note uh, implicating Roderick here. But... Burgess and his son are using, a, I guess, what is a crystal ball to watch Hathaway. <laughs> and Burgess uses some magic to burn the, the note after Hathaway kills himself. So that's all for nothing. I think narratively, this is really just to show us that magic exists in this story. Magic exists in this speculative world before we get to some things that are going to matter for the arc of this, this first storyline. I think that that's true. I think also it shows, it continues the theme that Roderick Burgess is a terrible father um, by having his son Alex have to hold this giant, I'm assuming delicate globe of glass <laughs> straight out in front of him. Probably, I'd imagine this is going on for hours and not like five minutes. Because <laughs> <laughs> Alex looks like he's sweating and terrified of what his father will do if he drops and then uh, the magic globe of viewing or whatever breaks. And of course, in the end, this whole story could have turned out a lot differently if Burgess had just been a better father. I think that's going to be the real theme of this story, actually. So then we uh, flash ahead to the news of Professor Hathaway's suicide. Uh, His suicide note had burnt up through the magic. um, And so no one uh, 
was able to link Roderick Burgess, although the Daily Mail has a shockingly uh, well-informed piece that were sh- shared with us here, to go to the point of talking about how in 1916, for those who were not paying attention earlier in the story, Mr. Burgess announced uh, that he had would raise and imprison death. And no one knows what happened in 1916, but everyone knows something happened. It's like, way to go, Daily Mail. Yeah, that's some real good investigative journalism there. I'm not sure uh, if if Burgess, I guess, should probably be looking for a mole or a leak or something in his organization. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a really good storytelling technique. We, we learned some other things about Burgess here. Uh, he's sometimes called the Demon King. That's a pretty cool title. You want to be Magus. I want to be the Demon King. I think we'll just... We'll call it good. Uh, He's also the head of the Order of Ancient Mysteries. That's the first time that his order is named here. We we also get uh, from the newspaper some reporting about the sleepy sickness, uh, which is uh, a condition in which people fall asleep and then don't wake up again. Uh, We also learned that uh, Stefan Wasserman, the the German infantryman we've been checking in on, uh, killed himself when he was 16 because he had the opposite condition. He was never, ever able to fall asleep again. Uh, which sounds uh, just really, really awful. And Glenn, here uh, Neil Gaiman, uh, you know, discusses sleepy sickness, but I think um, he is drawing on something that did happen around this time. Is that right? Yeah, during the First World War and, and into the 1920s, there was a real bizarre outbreak of a sleeping sickness uh, called sometimes sleepy sickness uh, that has the medical name, which we're actually going to get here in the story, encephalitis lethargica. And this affected about 5 million people around the globe. And it, it's something that um, uh, is related to Parkinson's disease. It attacks the brain and it can leave people in a almost like a, a statue-like or zombie-like condition where they're, they're speechless and, uh, and completely motionless as well. And, this was something that wasn't really very well understood uh, at the time. I mean, eventually, you know, scientists got to work and did figure it out. But when this first showed up, uh, it was pretty terrifying. The causes were unknown and there was no good treatment. There is now. People can get this condition and you can be treated for it. Uh, but this was I think, pretty well known in the, the pop culture of the day as well. Uh, it's shown up in uh, an Agatha Christie book or two. Uh, the the movie uh, Awakenings, I think that many of us have seen, uh, has something to do with this as well, right? That was one that starred Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Um, and I think this is something that kind of looms large in sort of British pop cultural history of the First World War, uh, along with shell shock. And of course, what's interesting here, right, is that Gaiman is taking this this thing that really happened and is is melding that in with his speculative world, because we as readers here are meant to to understand that the real cause of this is that dream is in prison. And so the dream world, sleep itself, is just not functioning correctly. Yeah, I think this is one of those things that um, Neil Gaiman and other authors who do his um, kind of fantastical realism like to do is you wet it just enough to make sure people can connect it to real places and real events um, to then, you know, tie it to reality as opposed to writing about, you know, just what's happening in Narnia. Yeah, fantastic realism is great, or magic realism. That's exactly what this is, and and really, in many ways, that's kind of what the whole genre of the Sandman is. That we're gonna we'll see it we'll see it morph as we go. So we uh, jump ahead to uh, August of 1926, and Alex has figured out uh, who it is who is stuck in the bubble, Bubble Man down below, um, and he points it out to his father, and his father said, "Yes, I knew have known for some time that it is dream." So this is the first instance of us getting. The name of the protagonist of the entire series, Dream, was the only one that fitted the bill. I was hoping you'd work it out on your own one day, uh, and you have. Well done. Um, so he hopes the order will be in good hands, and then we uh, have his assistant uh, <laughs> um, reflecting uh, something like uh, a, you know, the normal kind of heel turn face, I guess, uh, to the back. But uh, yes, right, because he thought he was going to he thought he was in line for the succession here. Uh, so this is this is not going to bode well. In fact, really, the next sequence is going to uh, to get us there. But before we do that, I, there's something I want to dwell on something that happens here in the, the sort of uh, Buffy style research scene that we get here where Alex clearly is auditioning to be in the, the Watchers Council. He 
he he has figured out that this is dream by consulting what he calls the Liber Paganarum Fulvarum, which is simply Latin for the Book of Yellow Pages. Uh, when I when we were reading this comic series in high school, I didn't know Latin yet. I know Latin now. It's my primary research language for my day job. So this just I didn't even read it as Latin. I just read Book of Yellow Pages and thought that's a real dumb name <laughs> for this this book, right? Like Necronomicon is way better. Uh, so I was curious about where this came from. And as far as I can tell, this is actually from Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Of course, Neil Gaiman co-wrote Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. So in fact, this comes from a series in which it is meant to be a joke and it is an in-joke between these two friends here. So uh, I think it's actually quite clever. I really liked it. That's excellent. I had not picked up on that because as I do not speak Latin, I just read it as Latin words. <laughs> right, which is all we're really supposed to read it as. Well, I think we could we can set the dead languages aside here and, and get into the next um, time hop here. In 1930, Roderick Burgess's lieutenant, uh, whose name is Sykes, uh, does in fact betray Burgess as we, we, we knew that he would from his expression in the previous segment. And he runs off with Burgess's mistress, uh, who has the really awesome name of Ethel Cripps. They take a bunch of money, but more importantly, they take magical artifacts, including Dream's helmet, uh, his ruby, and his uh, what you're calling a pouch, and I will refrain from calling a dice bag. Uh, <laughs> and we get a great line of narration here when Gaiman writes simply, magical war was declared. Uh, that's a pretty good pretty good voiceover for the, the prologue of some epic fantasy movie, I guess. And, and and now we see Sykes giving Dream's helmet to, I don't know, a demon or, or something like that in exchange for a, a magical amulet that will protect him from harm. And this amulet works because we see Roderick and Alex Burgess keep trying to use magic to kill Sykes, you know, from afar, the same way that we saw them uh, burning up uh, Dr. Hathaway's suicide note. But Sykes is protected from them by this uh, amulet until six years later when Edith leaves him and takes the amulet with her, at which point Burgess is able to use magic to basically explode Sykes's head. Yeah, the explosion of his head is uh, great. I like that his glasses remain perfectly intact, despite all of his uh, bone fragments seemingly disappearing or perhaps going outward. Um, And actually, um, on the page in which... uh, Alex reveals to his father that he knows who it is. We can see Sykes uh, in the corner at one point is holding what looks like a signed headshot saying, you know, wishing love to him from Ethel Cripps, which I think is great that she's uh, carrying around her own headshots and then handing them to her lovers um, just in case they forgot who she was. It's, it's strange. Also, you mentioned the magical war is declared is a great standalone kind of word uh, narration bubble. Uh, but it's also funny to me that it's on the bottom of a pane of um, uh, Sykes and uh, Ethel Cripps um, engaged uh, in lovemaking, um, which is just uh, a funny juxtaposition to me, too. Right, right. Magical war is just a euphemism for sex, I suppose. <laughs> well, Brent, I have to say, I, I look forward to you beginning to pass around signed headshots of yourself, just to, just to friends, family, lovers, whoever might, might need them. Um, I can't wait to get mine in the mail. But before then, it is uh, it is time for another interlude. We have to check in with our, our characters again. This time it's July 1939. Uh, Ellie Marston is still asleep. Daniel Bustamante was one of the last people to succumb to the sleepy sickness. And he even had time to marry and to have kids before he contracted the condition. But now he's been asleep for 13 years and Unity Kincaid is also still asleep, but her story, her, her story is quite dark. Uh, in the home where she is cared for, someone raped her seven years ago, and as a result of that, she gave birth to a daughter who was given up for adoption. And Unity just she never woke up for any of it. Uh, this is going to come back at the end of the story. Uh, this was th- this was disturbing, and this was this was really heartbreaking. Yeah, I think in many ways, Unity Kincaid's story is um, the hardest um, to kind of for the reader to experience and read for this issue. Felt a lot worse for how she was treated as a character than any time that Bubble Man spends in his bubble. And there's also then the reference to uh, Wesley Dodds, whose nightmares have stopped because he's begun to dress up as a costumed uh, 
crime fighter in which he uses gas to put people to sleep and then drop sand on them. Um, Sandman, uh, the golden age DC character, that was the Sandman who most DC comics probably thought uh, fans uh, thought they maybe were getting when they, uh, the announcement was there was a new Sandman comic. So here is uh, finally, you know, a good chunk of the way through the issue is the appearance of the character that you thought might be this comic might be about, but it's not at all. But notably, he uh, mentions or the narration mentions that he no longer has the dream about the strange man in the helmet who has the burning eyes. So here is where we have another person who dreamt of a very similar uh, visage. Right. The real the real sense here is that Wesley Dodds has been haunted by this this figure in his dreams. Of course, we know that is actually a dream and that he's been compelled to go out at night dressed up uh, as the Sandman. Right. He's wearing his, his green business suit, purple cape, red fedora and golden gas mask and sprinkling sand on on these people once they've passed out that he's been compelled to go out and do that by this dream. And what Gaiman writes is that now that Wesley is doing this, right, he's not having that dream anymore. And he's able to sleep the sleep of the just, which of course is the the title of this issue. And there's one more thing in this interlude, in this section of the interlude that uh, we don't have to talk about now, but I want to point out, which is that Gaiman writes in his voice as the narrator, he writes that the universe knows that someone is missing and slowly it attempts to replace him. And that's what's going on with Wesley Dodds. Uh, This is a statement that is loaded with metaphysical implications because according to this, the universe is sentient and it takes action. It's probably still too early in the series to really get into that, but I think we want to put a pin in this because we are going to want to come back to to the metaphysics of this at some point. Yeah, I mean, it is a seemingly almost a throwaway line, but I think you're right that it bears out a lot of things about how Dream and his siblings uh, exist and uh, what kind of binds them and what rules apply, which is an ongoing kind of theme of the whole series, too. I don't think I had ever paid attention to the line before at all. And, and you know, as we said in our introductory episode, this is gonna be my fourth read through the series, but but doing it slowly like this and taking notes and talking about it with each other is highlighting some of these things. And, and actually, there's really a lot that is crammed into this, this first issue here that is setting the stage for things to come, which I think is just expertly done. So we jump ahead to 1947. Um, where a very old Roderick Burgess uh, and his uh, much older son are now once again talking of, uh, about going and confronting Dream to demand things. Uh, Burgess knows that his time is is probably nearing an end, and so he just takes his time to uh, yell and point his cane at uh, Dream in his glass prison to... Um, complain about all the power that he could have been given behind his wildest dreams. It's it's really just at this point we see um, that in a triptych uh, three-panel expression, kind of the menacing man who we've seen throughout the story just crumble into anguish and tears and crying before then um, passing out um, or dying there uh, right on the on the page. So I think the transition of the, how Burgess looks on this page versus that first page we talked about, Glenn, is is very startling. So what are your what are your thoughts on this? Uh, the mortality of Roderick Burgess? Yeah, I mean he he goes from yelling and threatening to begging, really in just a heartbeat here. You can you can see just coming off the page all of the anxiety that he has about death or the fears that he has of of dying and he seems completely terrified but also completely broken and is really just lashing out Uh, of course one might suggest that well i guess for starters we're all going to die and we have to deal with that live your best life but two if you were trying to live forever that maybe treating dream this way wasn't the best strategy to do that it seems like it was a mistake so so he expires and we have Finally, Roderick is gone. So then we leap forward to 55, where we see Roderick's tombstone. And Glenn, I wonder your thoughts on this, uh, the headstone and, and what it says. 1865 through 1947, not dead, only sleeping. So I couldn't tell if that was something that Roderick was doing because he wanted to poke fun at, at his captive. It was his last, you know, in in death kind of, you know, poking fun or taking, you know pointing out how powerful he is perhaps that he 
um, took charge of a dream or if it was done by either Alex or others to make fun of Roderick that he did not capture death. He captured dreams. So he is not dead. He is just sleeping. It certainly strikes me as a joke. But I think, as you point out, the question is, who who made the joke? I I have to believe that Burgess is the one, that Roderick Burgess is the one who made this joke. He seems like the sort of person who would have a lot of instructions for his funeral and what's to happen to him after his death. And Alex Burgess seems like the type of adult child who would want to go against his father's wishes, but not be so sure that he's not still going to get in trouble for it and would just go through with them is my sense. But I, I also thought that this was uh, something of, of an homage to H.P. Lovecraft. This is almost feels like it's a, a line from uh, some of the, the rhymes and chants that we get about Cthulhu in the call of Cthulhu. Uh, that is not dead. That um, can forever lie. So yeah, it's uh, it just, it struck me as a, an interesting statement. Um, that uh, either Roderick wanted to make or someone wanted to make about him. Uh, and then we once again cycle through our four, um, well, three now, since um, poor Stefan uh, took his life, the three remaining victims of the Sleepy Sickness um, characters to check in on each of them. Ellie is diagnosed uh, suffering from encephalitis lethargica. So here is we have the um, medical definition or medical t- name given of the sleepy sickness. Um, and we are told she wakes only four or five times a year. Uh, poor Daniel is still awake much of the time, but he doesn't speak. And, uh, other people say he's like a zombie or a walking dead man. And, uh, Daniel misses his castle of clouds in the sky. Um, and unity Kincaid is, is in a nursing home and she's just left there with the elderly, just wheeled around. Yeah, we're not we're not done with any of these characters yet, and and Unity, as we've said, is going to have uh, sort of one more real bit of, of of heartbreak and the emotional arc for her here in this issue. Uh, but we come back out of this to our narrative with the Burgess family. Alex is now in charge of the Order of Ancient Mysteries, and his, I think, much younger lover Paul is trying to talk him into letting Dream go, letting him out of this prison in the basement. But Alex is afraid of doing. Doing that. Uh, uh, Dream hasn't gotten out so far, so there's no reason to think that Alex himself won't die before Dream ever manages to escape. On the other hand, if Alex lets Dream out, what kind of apology could he really make that would placate this numinous being? Still, these comments by Paul, this suggestion by Paul, really seems to rattle Alex, who takes a trip down to the basement to talk to Dream. And he tells him that the deal is still the same as when his father was alive. So I think we saw him upstairs kind of vacillating, I think, a little bit, uh, prevaricating maybe between these two positions. But he seems to channel something of his father here when he gets down into the basement, almost as if the basement is where he puts on the persona of the head of the order and and uses what he learned from his father uh but but meekly i would add and I, but i found that interesting yeah i found that interesting too because he is his posture and his demeanor is very different up above in the study but as you said glenn when he goes down to the basement to talk to dream the bubble man um he is clasping you know a very strong like walking stick cane thing that i, I don't remember seeing the head of it having these uh angry teeth the way they did when his father glassed it, but it was probably his father's. And he's very much having his father's pose of like arms crossed and just dictating to dream. This is what the deal is. And he asks the question, but as if he expects an answer, you know, and, and he's, he's very much trying to take things from a position of power, which on the one hand, as we know from above, he doesn't, he's terrified and he doesn't know what to do. On the other hand, he knows that, you know, he needs to keep up with the approach that they've taken to this point. And we actually see then when we see Dream's face, uh, looking back and thinking no, it, but we see kind of piercing eyes that look almost like they're burning with in a blue light, which is similar to what we, some of the characters, um, who are dealing with the loss of Dream remembered seeing that visage in their own dreams. Yeah, he, he is certainly angry about being imprisoned. And we are actually coming close to 
the the climax of the the prison scene of the or the really the conclusion of the prison narrative maybe we should say we're going to fast forward now to 1968 where Alex Burgess is happy to be taken advantage of the 60s counterculture's interest in yoga and tantric sex uh, to get some new members and to make some more money uh, but we're going to get some information here that's going to be important in the resolution of this prison narrative. Uh, we're told that Alex won't let them use psychedelic drugs in the house just in case going into a state of waking dreams would empower dream again somehow. And we're also then told, and this is what's really important, is that this is also why the guards in the basement are never allowed to sleep on duty. And in fact, they're given amphetamines to stay awake. We switch to 1970 now, and Alex actually retires from the order, and he, he hands control of its operations over to Paul. Paul was never a true believer, right? He, he just views the order as a successful scam. It's about getting laid and making money for him, is what we're told. But in his retirement, Alex becomes obsessed with two things, his dead father and dream. And we get some quick portraits of Alex aging into the 1980s here, uh, treating Dream very much like his father did at the end. I mean, Alex has just become kind of a, 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 a diluted copy of his father at this point, and it's pretty sad. It is pretty sad, and his, his father still looms so largely over him, and we're told that he spends most of his time both writing a memoir about his father, writing um, letters to newspapers to defend his father's reputation and editing volumes of his father's letters, but then also one night he slashed his father's portrait with a knife. So it's Alex himself, in some ways, is also imprisoned by Roderick Burgess, even though Roderick is gone, that Alex is now stuck, um, you know, having to take, keep awareness and keep guards maintained on the thing that could, you know, do terrible things to him if let loose that he cannot conceive, but also he doesn't, he's not able to fully take advantage of his position and really enjoy it the way that his father did, um, at least for a little while before Sykes uh, betrayed him with uh, Ethel Cripps. But he's also afraid of undoing what his father did. He won't just go let Dream out, which I I might think he, he could have been able to, to do that right when his father died. That There was probably a moment there where he could have said that was something he did. Now that I have the power to let you out, I am letting you out. I suppose that still might have been risky. But uh, as we're going to see, uh, it, it couldn't have gone any worse than it's actually going to go. So we come now to 1988, which is the, the present of this story, which uh, suddenly makes me feel very old. And one of the guards in the basement falls asleep and dreams that he's on a beach. And we see Dream's hand scooping up some sand within this dream, uh, but then there is a thud and the guard awakes and inside the glass bowl here in the real world, in the basement of this mansion, Dream has collapsed. The guards go get Paul and Paul decides that they should open up the prison and see if Dream is all right. Uh, of course, this is like, I think literally the oldest trick in the book and Dream rolls over and then blows Dream sand into their faces and they all fall asleep. I have to say, it's not entirely clear how this works, but it, it seems that uh, with these half dozen people sleeping in front of him, Dream is somehow now able to return to the realm of dreams where he is the monarch, where he's the ruler, but he's weak, he's naked. Uh, so he visits a dream and he eats some KFC that someone is dreaming about. Uh, that's unfortunate. Couldn't have found some like good Chicago style pizza or, or something. Uh, but he's also then able to use his power to make some clothes for himself. Uh, and he ends up looking, I think, a lot like Alice Cooper. And <laughs> we should note here that Dream makes a comment about how he is weaker without his tools, which is to say the, the things that Sykes ran off with that's going to be important yeah and i think it's uh it's very interesting here that we know that dream is aware that he is weaker we don't know what the extent of his powers are before the guards fall asleep and he's able to to scoop the sand out of one dreams we do see that uh, alex's wheelchair had accidentally been turned in such a way that it broke the circle but dream is not able to you know physically then get his way out of the globe and take out one of the guards while the other sleeps this isn't super heroics he's not putting on a cape all of a sudden and taking to flight to the air he needs to gather you know at least sand 
Um, and then he's blowing the sand. So then, you know, again, I wonder if comic readers originally reading this figured that, uh, there would be the constant motif of him using sand or other things associated with dream in order to access or use his powers. And it may not be entirely clear to Neil Gaiman whether that's something he wants to have as an ongoing motif or not, but, uh, we'll be revisiting that as we go. So Dream is back in his realm. He's back now. And uh, we're going to get an interlude to see how that affects our characters who have the sleepy sickness. Uh, Ellie wakes up quoting through the looking glass, really as if only mere seconds have passed for her rather than 70 years. Daniel Bustamante smiles. Uh, He's back and he is ready to resume living. And I hope he does. And in the garden of her nursing home, this is the real heartbreak here, Unity Kincaid wakes up and she sheds a tear and she says that she dreamed she had a baby. So even though before we were told, you know, that she didn't wake up when any of this was going on, she was still aware of it. Uh, It's horrifying and awful. Yeah, that was a really um, affecting panel. Um, And I was glad that it was significantly removed from the image of um the kentucky colonel with dream pulling chicken from his bucket because uh that emotional swing i couldn't have achieved in in one page i needed the space that uh luckily the plotting that neil gaiman and sam keith give us here gives us the room to to have a joke but also then still be affected by um the tragedy of unity kincaid yes right there's a because there's a lot of emotion here in our our interlude characters, I guess we've been calling him. Uh, you know, Daniel Bustamante's story is also really heartbreaking. This this guy who simply kind of shut down, wasn't able to to function anymore because he had lost his dreams. But this is a guy with a with a family, and now it's been decades that he's lived like this. Uh, I, I guess maybe the good news is this, that he can try to go live in the world again and 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 get to go back to his life and repair those relationships to actually be a presence in the life of his children. Hopefully his wife is still alive as well, but unity, she's just had something awful done to her, but then also it feels here like she's had something taken from her, something stolen from her. Well, let's, we'll set that aside for now and get back to dreams story. Alex Burgess is taking a nap in his father's mansion He's in a dream, and a cat sits on a high-backed chair, and it morphs into dream. Alex knows who this is, and he is terrified. Dream, understandably, is angry about his imprisonment, and he gives a, a really scary speech about it. He, he has three gripes. First, he was held prisoner for 70 years, and just because he's immortal doesn't mean that time passes any more quickly. 70 years is still a long time. It's an agonizingly long time to spend in a fishbowl in a basement. And he's also insulted that Roderick Burgess was able to trap him with what he calls petty hedge magicking, a two-penny spell. He's offended by this. And, and finally, the third of his gripes is that the Burgesses never gave any thought to what Dream's absence was doing to the world, how much harm must have been caused because he couldn't manage the affairs of his realm. And, and this is where it's not stated explicitly, but certainly the implication is that the sleepy sickness is the result of Dream's absence. And so Roderick Burgess and Alex, by continuing to keep him in prison, have caused this. And Alex's only excuse here is that they were trying to capture death. It's like, well, we didn't mean to capture you. We were trying to capture somebody else. And here we learn that Dream is death's younger brother. This is something we'll get a lot more about soon. And Dream wants his tools back. He wants his his pouch, he wants his helm, and he wants his ruby. And I think it's it's pretty clear that the search for these objects is going to be the arc of this first storyline. But this issue here, the first issue, is going to finish out with Alex. Dream punishes Alex for imprisoning him. He gives him what he calls eternal waking, which is a type of everlasting nightmare. And we get a glimpse of what this is like, thinking that you're awake, but really you're in a nightmare that you cannot control. And from the outside, from the perspective of Paul, who is there with him, Alex just won't wake up, but he he lies there uh, mumbling to himself, uh, sleep talking, I guess is what we call that. Uh, and the issue ends as it began with an image of the Burgess mansion. But now Paul begs Alex to awake. And the, the last word of the story is please. And 
I immediately have some questions about Dream's decision here, this choice to torment Alex Burgess, and, and maybe we should just call it torture. This does not seem very heroic to me uh, in the chivalric sense. So just right away, just having read the first issue of this comic book, Dream seems like he's going to be an unusual and complex protagonist, right? He's, he's someone I can feel a lot of sympathy for when he's trapped in a fishbowl down in the basement, but he's also someone whose moral choices trouble me or can trouble me. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, going to make for some great story. No, I agree. And the second to last panel where there is kind of the outlines of Dream's face, although slightly more feline in form, um, referencing the kind of cat shape he initially took in uh, Alex's dream. But um, that superimposed over the still unwaking body, you know, continual slumber and nightmare of Alex, you have dream and he clearly looks like he's smiling. And it's one thing. You know, he's, he's been captured for 70 years, 70 some years. So it's, it's one thing for him to, you know, want some kind of revenge, but the level to which he seems, you know, to almost be taking joy in this, you know, I'm not sure at this point that, uh, Dream is a character who I particularly would want to root for, even if injustices are done to him. I wouldn't want to see that, but. But still, he's not, he doesn't come across like the hero or the um, protagonist we want to wish for or the person we're most concerned about. Cause, um, you know, while things were difficult for him to sit there, the effects on the humans who we've, uh, the interlude characters we had were far worse than anything that actually happened to him during this time. He just sat in a bubble and had to wait. And that was difficult, but that wasn't, torture that wasn't pain that wasn't you know losing his life that wasn't not remembering you know giving birth to a daughter um after being raped um it's it's not any of those things so it's yeah he's he and the the delight he seems to take in that last page is just um it, it really gives you pause as to who it is we're dealing with here or what rather what we're dealing with here and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens next. I think this is a great way to end this first issue. It makes me want to turn the page in the hardcover collection in which I'm reading it and get to the next issue right away. But that's not what the project is. So I, I have held off until we will uh, we will record again. Uh, but I, you know, I'm just trying to imagine myself as reading this for the first time, maybe back in 1988. And I have to say that I'm really impressed and I'm, I'm really compelled. Uh, did you feel like this held up to your uh, memory or your, the expectations that your memory had? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of things I'd forgotten about it. As I mentioned, the interlude characters in my memory, um, flawed as it is, I remember them all. I thought all of them, you know, fell asleep and then couldn't wake up. And, um, that's not quite what happens. In, in some ways, it's more terrifying what happens to them. Um, I did remember a little bit more of what happened to Unity, uh, but I'd forgotten about um, what happened with poor Daniel and uh, Stefan. Um, I remembered him being aff- uh, afflicted when he was in the trenches, but I didn't remember about him taking his own life because of the effect of that um, after the war. So um, I'm very interested in uh, turning the pages and reading uh, and picking up on other things that I missed uh, the several readings I've had before or just remembering things that I had seen before and uh, that I really appreciated. Well, before we bring this episode to a close, there's a few more things we want to talk about. I think it's going to be our habit as we go through at the end of each issue to uh, talk about the cover art, talk about the title, and to talk about a favorite panel. But let's start with the the cover art itself, uh, the Dave McKean cover art. Uh, I guess the, the really the question here for you, Brent, is is maybe two parts. One, I just how does it make you feel? Do you enjoy it? Uh, and two, how does it encapsulate what the issue is about are there things that mckean has taken from the issue here or is it maybe not related to the issue at all i'm glad because i you know the the only times i've read this are in collections and not individual issues um i honestly i hadn't spent a lot of time particularly looking at this image before are looking at it now um but i'm actually enjoying it quite a bit i enjoy the way that the figure of dreams eyes are, are kind of burning white in a very kind of alien way kind of strange way it, it I, I have a lot of questions about that um and he's kind of there slash not there as if he's kind of a ethereal 
in nature. Um, but it's, it's strange to see the figure having the ethereal presence in black with a white background as opposed to what we would see normally, which it mirrors what you pointed out in terms of the, the speech and thought bubbles for dream with the white text on the black background. Here we have the black figure on the white background with the white eyes as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of black or red eyes or something. Um, and then it's an interesting collection of things around the sides. I mean, what do you make of, uh, kind of the, the, the bookcases that we have, uh, on either side of the, the shelves we have on either side of the image? Yeah, it's like a like a cabinet of of curiosities here. Uh, some of this, uh, it's mixed media as well, so some of it is actual uh, photography, and some of it seems to to really make sense with the themes of the the comic book series and and this issue as well. We get two images that are about time. One is a, a little pocket watch down at the the bottom left that also has a little note on it that says Gates of Dawn. That's very interesting. Uh, and then we also have uh, an hourglass, right, with, with sand going from one glass bubble to another. I think what's probably most interesting about that here is that time has run out. All of the sand is in the bottom bubble. So that seems to be something of a of a theme here, at least on the on the cover. And I can see that relating here. This story took place over the span of 70 years. The thing that Dream is most upset about is his stolen time or one of the three things he's very upset about. Let's talk about the title, Sleep of the Just. This actually is a line that appears in the story. It's it's appears when we're meeting Wesley Dodds, who is the uh, the golden age detective comics superhero, the Sandman, one of the founding members of the Justice Society of America. But why do you think that's the title of this issue? Why is Sleep of the Just the phrase that Neil Gaiman has decided in some way encapsulates what this story is about? I'm not quite sure. Um, on the one hand, the whole thing is kind of a tale of kind of a vengeful I mean, maybe revenge more than justice by the end. Um, certainly, I think what happens to the interlude characters throughout is not just at all. So perhaps it's just the justice that finally the Burgess family gets at the end of everything is the sleep of the just it's referring to is the waking nightmare is the sleep of the just, which is kind of in line, I guess, with the horror comic that in many way this uh, first issue particularly comes across. But I mean, what are your thoughts on the title? Yeah, I was really puzzled by it. Uh, this is a phrase that we use, sleep of the just, but it it's not one of these phrases that comes from scripture or comes from Shakespeare, as so many of our phrases come from. Uh, I'm not really sure where it actually comes from. I'm not sure that anyone else is either, though I will say that uh, knowing French, this is a, a phrase that can be used in French as well. And of course, Gaiman is going to use all sorts of phrases like that, lines from literature that have to do with sleep or dreams in these issue titles, uh, which makes sense when your story is about dream. So I think what I really gravitated towards here was the word just in the title, because this does not seem to be a story about justice at all. As you say, it's a story about vengeance. It is not a story about people behaving correctly. It's about people behaving incorrectly. And so we the only person who's described as sleeping the sleep of the just here is Wesley Dodds, who is someone who is uh, out fighting crime, is trying to make the world a better place. Whereas everyone else seems to be in it for themselves somehow, all of the people we see taking action in the story. So I, I took it to be kind of an ironic title, an intentionally ironic title, because I think that my sense here, seeing the story end with Dream torturing Alex, uh, I think that this story is going to take that up. I think that we are going to see whether or not Dream himself is behaving justly, or if there might be some justice that will will come to him or come for him in some way. Well, I think it's time now to to talk about our favorite panels. And Brent, I'll I'll just kick it to you. Let you have first go of this one. What was your uh, What was your favorite panel? Uh, it was tough. There were a bunch of uh, favorite panels I really liked, um, but I think on page twenty three, which is the um, nineteen sixty eight time frame, my uh, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give you my runner up and uh, my favorite panel on the same page. My runner up, um, if I'm not stealing it from you, is he seems to conjure at least the image of some kind of a demonic cat with many eyes within its eyes. 
I like that one because it's funny. Um, but uh, my my actual favorite panel then is the bottom of the page, although it's a little tough because this is kind of a bit of humor next to kind of the sad image of Unity Kincaid who's just being wheeled from place to place. But you have the guards at the time with their coffee and amphetamines freely available to watch Dream in his um, globe cage or fishbowl cage. And one of them is wearing a T-shirt that says, Do What Thou Wilt Buster. And it looks like something that could be like Daffy Duck on his shirt. And it's great because do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law is something that Alistair Crowley said. So here's a reference to that. And again, as we talked about before, Burgess very much a, a Crowley personality, um, so much so that he's put up as if he's an adversary of Crowley and wanting to attract more people to his cult. But then having it be something that the duck says is very funny to me. Um, but it also reminds me um, when – there was first a reference that you and I had as teenagers to this phrase. I said it, and I believe you misheard me, and you thought I said, do what you want, it's the hole in the wall. <laughs> I sure did. I remember this. So it's impossible now for me to ever think, do what thou wilt, without immediately wanting to say, it's the hole in the wall. In fact, I've said it sometimes in business meetings, um, and then people get really confused as to why I'm saying wilt. Uh <laughs> <laughs> thou wilt uh, before I say anything else. But uh, but I think that's my favorite panel. Did you have a favorite panel? I, I'm going to pick the, the title page as my favorite panel. I'm always kind of drawn to these, these single page panels or these whole page panels. I like the sort of bigness of it. But in this case, what I'm most drawn to is the title itself, Sleep of the Just, the way it is laid out on the page and the font that is used is this um, Art Nouveau style that was what advertisements and posters and billboards looked like in 1916. Uh, and even the coloring is exactly right. And so I love the bit of, of historical consciousness here that the artists have put into the, the title page in this font selection. Uh, it's not just paying attention to what the story is, uh, but it also seems in, in some ways it's it's them uh, being aware, being conscious of their their own lineage, of the, the history of their guild as commercial artists and i really appreciated that and it is also just beautiful i would hang it on my wall yeah it's great and i think in many ways it could actually be the cover of this collection because as we'll see as we go forward without going to spoilers here we have our protagonist and we have uh, a number of items that drive the plot of the issues to follow and uh, it's a nice collection, as you said, with the actual way that the title itself is set up. Um, I like the way that even the uh, the placement of the creative team acknowledgments in the in it, um, and even just the selection of kind of glyphs and uh, other markings of the circle that is being used to draw an imprisoned dream um, is kind of wonderful because there's some ones that are easily recognizable and then there are other ones that I don't recognize at all, which may be from just languages I don't know, or it could just be um, Sam Keith uh, really enjoying um, or perhaps um, in the inks, uh, Mike Dringenberg um, kind of enjoying kind of inventing characters. And, and if you clutter enough stuff in there, then uh, you need to do all that in order to capture um, death's little brother. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's actually some, uh, some Tolkien runes in there, uh, which is always, uh, always a delight. It is a ring, Glendon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yes. If you're going to have a ring, you have to have some Tolkien runes. Well, on that note, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Sleep of the Just and what things you see Neil Gaiman doing that are going to set up the rest of the series. Where are the, the tensions? And let us know what you thought of Dream's decision to give Alex Burgess this state of a eternal waking, this kind of dream torment. I think that'd be a great conversation to have. Uh, next time uh, will be issue two of Sandman, Imperfect Hosts. Uh, and I can't wait to reread that one and um, discuss it with you again, Glenn, and with our listeners listeners on the forums next time. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, but until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>